So maybe you've seen the uh, he, he Gets Us ads on TV. Um, apparently, uh, there's some kind of big game happening tonight, and there's going to be, um, I'm not too familiar with that event, but apparently that these, these commercials are, are going to be um, shown to millions this evening. The He Gets Us ads are ads about the humanity of Jesus, the mercy, the compassion, the sincerity of Jesus. They're intriguing for sure. Of all the ones that I've seen, and, and apparently even the ones being shown tonight, um, will again be uh, highlighting virtues of Christ's humanity, uh, but the critique of these particular ads or commercials is that they speak little to none of his deity. We know that we're studying the book of John, that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The most simple verse ever written in Scripture that encapsulates the gospel is found in the book of 1 John, same author, later in the New Testament, written around the same time. John simply states, all one-syllable words, he that hath the Son has life. He that does not have the Son does not have life. Isn't it glorious that your Creator made the understanding of your salvation so simple. You see, my friends, unbelief has no problem accepting Jesus for being Jesus the man. Religious unbelievers of Jesus' time, including his own family members, had no problem accepting Jesus' works and signs and words as Jesus the human rabbi, the good teacher, the good friend, a wonderful family member. But they refused to accept him as deity, as God. Therefore, they remained enemies of God. And again, this is why John writes one of quite a few passages in the Gospel of John that you'll run across that clearly states that many believed in his works and Jesus' human personhood but rejected his deity is found in John chapter 12. As you hold your finger in John 5, can you flip over to chapter 12 and let's read beginning in verse 37. Just one of quite a handful of texts we don't have time to go through this morning. just kind of identifying this issue at hand. The end of verse 36 says, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. No problem with this person, but not believing in his ability to save. And this was actually a fulfillment of 
Isaiah the prophet, when he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him, Christ. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And here's verse 43, is a tremendous summation of this little section. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And, and basically what the Apostle John's saying there as you go back to chapter 5 is that for as much popularity and notoriety and convenience that Jesus could bring to them as men, they were good with him, right? But to note him and to confess him as God in human flesh, uh, it was too much at stake. It was really too much to lose. Some of you come from backgrounds where believing in Jesus, the human, is okay. Believing that he was a great rabbi of Jewish lore is perfectly fine. Um, believing that he was a great teacher, even that uh, uh, recognizing him as a prophet come from God, because you remember back in chapter 2, there were many that recognized him as a prophet come from God, and yet they appreciated the, the notoriety of acquaintance with this rabbi Jesus brought them. They refused to accept him as God in flesh. The, the divine one who could actually and had been granted authority from heaven to forgive their sin and to, to grant them e exclusive eternal life. So you come from backgrounds where people have no problem with Jesus the man. But really, the religious unbelief of the gospel of John is really demonstrative of all human unbelief, isn't it? Generally, people have no problem with who he is as a person, but when it comes to bowing their knee to him as God, that means something much more deep, doesn't it? This means that you've got to recognize him as God and that apart from being forgiven by him and owning him as your Lord and Savior exclusively, there is no forgiveness of sin and there is no granting of eternal life. When it gets to that point, our, our, our flesh steps back and our personhood steps back and says, you know what, it really can't be that profound and yet that simple. And yet Jesus is saying, yes, it is. And I am that way. I am that truth. I am that life. And I am God and I can forgive and I will if you'll turn and you'll trust. So anyways, we've already seen from the time of Jesus's first public miracle that there was no problem with people. Many people following him. Jesus continued to go viral. The majority of his following were enamored with him as an amazing, sincere, compassionate person. But John's purpose for writing was to present Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the Son that existed with the Father 
from eternity, co-equal with the Father. Throughout the whole Gospel of John, there are evidences through statements or actions of Jesus' deity. There are seven I am statements. We learned that in the introduction to the book, didn't we? When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, or I am the door, Jesus is stating that which God stated of himself in Exodus chapter 3 upon asking Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. When Moses says, who in the world am I going to tell them sent me? And God tells Moses what? Tell them, I am. And that's where we get our name for God in the Old Testament, Jehovah. That's where we get our Greek word or Greek name for Jesus in the New Testament, Lord. The Greek word kurios is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Yahweh. So over 500 times, just in the Gospels alone, Jesus is called God just by way of his name, Lord Jesus Christ. Seven I am statements. Clear declarations of his deity. We saw that in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, as he is the word that has existed from eternity past. Christ's healing words, Christ's physical signs. All of these things are plenty evidence enough to compel each one of us to not uh, ignore Jesus as God. We get to chapter 5, and really the whole chapter, but in particular, verses 16 to 47, we have here the most profound, repetitive declaration of the deity of Jesus in all of the Gospels, and some say in all of the Scripture. Remember, chapters 5 through 7 is the portion of John's gospel where threats of Jesus' life dramatically increase as Jesus commences his Galilean ministry and intermittently goes to Jerusalem in obedience to Mosaic ceremonial law for the feasts of the Jews. During chapter 5, when Jesus steps to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews, the fire is lit against him. His, his enemies, the religious unbelief, are set to seize him and to kill him because he's proclaiming himself in various statements that they knew were claims that he was God. You remember verses 17 and 18 after he heals the man that was lame for 38 years. And that man identifies him to the Jewish religious unbelief as Jesus. And they come to find him Jesus says in verse 18, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Here Jesus claims to be God as he states that both he and his father equally understand the Mosaic Sabbath and have understood it together from the beginning. And what's the response in verse 18 of chapter five? For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath but also was calling God his own father making him what? Equal with God. In verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. 
Jesus' words give evidence here that he's eternally one with the Father. His words, his message, come with authority to save from the Father himself and the actual power to bring about eternal life opposed to eternal death is within the ability of the Son of God. Pastor Mark preached a tremendous sermon last week on four evidences of Jesus' deity. Some may say the most significant evidence in this text is still to come. Pastor Mark spoke on his power, his authority, his miracles, and his claims, proof of his deity. But by the time we come down to verses 30 and 31, these verses give us a segue to our final section of the chapter, which is just full of theological statements of evidences of the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verses 30 and 31, Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. As I hear from who? As I hear from the Father, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is one who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Jesus is claiming that he makes no decision of his own. This is no mere declaration of mere humanity or of his inability as Jesus receives from the Father, as he hears from the Father, he judges and he acts. By not seeking his own will, but that of the Father, Jesus is saying that they're the same will from the same origin because the eternality of both has already been established. Jesus says he's been sent, and the religious unbelief by that statement alone would have immediately understood this was a claim of deity as Jesus says he was sent by the Father. So Christ here is speaking to the eternal counsel he had with the Father before the foundation of the world in John 17, if you want to write that in the cross-reference of your Bible, among other passages in the book of John, reminds us in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane that Jesus' final desire on earth was to fulfill the will of the Father that had been given to him according to to the glory he shared with the Father in eternity past. Jesus' life and ministry is a perfect, divine reflection of his obedience to his Father. In verse 32, it is the Father who does what? Who testifies of the deity of his own Son. And it's here where Jesus continues to get himself into deeper and more treacherous, life-threatening waters. Maybe you noticed when we read verses 31 and 32, and I would encourage you maybe just real quickly to go back in your Bible or highlight it on your device. The words testify or testimony or testifies. I think you'll find it four times. God has a witness. You see, the basic root word for testimony or testify is found also in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 where Jesus told all of his followers 
you will be my witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. A witness is a testimony. A testimony is a witness. God the Father has his testimonies that we're going to study this week and next. He has his witnesses. He has those who have verified the nature of his own son. You see, religious unbelief has no problem with the nature of who God is. They have no problem understanding that he's eternal. The issue is here with Jesus the man and his nature. So God, who is eternal, sends a testimony through his son, but then he gives other witnesses. And we're going to look at three this week and next, just the first one today. I think it's fascinating that in Jewish culture, certainly in the Mosaic law, truth could not be affirmed unless it was upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. So God the Father, certainly being God of the law, the giver of the law, he knows this, and so he's going to establish very clearly that his son is divine in his personhood and that he should be listened to on authority from heaven. So again, as John takes a deeper dive into presenting Jesus as the Son of God, he clarifies here that God the Father has the most to say about the deity of his son. So witness number one, witness number one is found here in verse 33. You, Jesus, the pronoun you here is God. This is God's witness. One of three. You have sent John and he has testified to the truth but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So he's basically saying here, really, even what John, this is John the Baptist, by the way, not John the Gospel writer, even the message that John the Baptist was given was not the message of Christ, it was a message given to him by the Father of Christ. So John the Baptist is God's witness, not Jesus's. He's the forerunner to Christ but he's God's witness, the first person of verification, if you will, so to speak, on the merely human level. Verse 35, he was the lamp. Notice it doesn't say he was the light. Who's the light? Right? Well, we know God is, 1 John 1, 7. God is light and in him no darkness at all, right? But Jesus is the light of the world, okay? He's not the phos, where we get our English word photos. He's not the light, but what is he? He's a lamp. John the Baptist was a lamp that was burning and was shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his influence. In his influence. So God has sent a proclaimer of the nature and purpose of the Son of God, and this proclaimer is God's witness to the veracity of the eternal nature of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus states here that this first testimony of God as to who Jesus is was John the Baptist. Now, folks, God first noted, by way of prophecy, who this forerunner of Christ would be 700 years before Jesus even came on the scene of human history. Isaiah the prophet spoke 
Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, that John the Baptist would be the one who would prepare the way of the Lord through his preaching. Go over with me to Luke chapter 1 real quick, if you would. Luke chapter 1, a familiar text. Many folks look at this at the Christmas season. You're familiar with it. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. God had something to say here very clearly to John the Baptist's parents in relationship to the birth of their son and his purpose. You know the story in the days, verse 5, of Herod, the king of Judea. It's a priest named Zacharias, and he had a wife named Elizabeth, and they served God, they walked blamelessly, and the end of verse 7 says they were pretty old. We're pretty certain that this probably means they're over 60. I turned 55 like a week and a half ago. I think I'm Buckeye card eligible now. That's pretty discouraging. I'm not 60 yet, but apparently I suppose if Rhonda had a child, you would all be amazed. She's not. <laughs> so they had a visit as they were performing. He was performing his priestly visit, and he's at the altar of incense, and the nations gathered outside the temple, all praying. The angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias, verse 11, while he's offering incense at the altar, and Zacharias is troubled. The angel says, don't be afraid. We know this angel is a messenger from who? Verse 19, I am Gabriel, the messenger from God. I stand in the presence of God. So remember, John the Baptist is God's witness to the reality of who Jesus is. There's going to be a work of the Spirit in Elizabeth's womb, verse 15. She's going to have a child, verse 17. He'll be a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So that to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias asks a few questions. Gabriel verifies the message. And he's to be quiet until the proper time. So prophetically, Isaiah 40 and verse 3. And again here in somewhat of a prophetic announcement again, only more in real time, God sends a messenger about his witness that will be born as the forerunner. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17 is the account of John the Baptist, the forerunner, right? Baptizing Christ. I think at the baptism of Christ where God the Father speaks from heaven, and we really don't know who all heard God speak. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased as the dove lit upon the shoulder of Jesus. We don't know. Many believe it was just John the Baptist and Jesus and others saw the dove lit on the shoulder of Christ. We don't know. But even that text really is proof that John the Baptist was a messenger of the Father as he had brought to that point in his 
in his public preaching ministry, a culmination of sorts, where he's in the water, the baptism waters with the Son of God himself. As God approves of his Son, he's putting his stamp of approval on the fruit of John the Baptist's message given to him by the Father. So John would preach the good news of the coming Savior and thousands upon thousands would come from the Judean countryside to hear him. And many were saved. Among them that would come would be the religious leaders who would hear and see the power of God working through the life of John the Baptist. They would recognize John the Baptist as a prophet of God but yet deny the power of his message concerning Jesus, the Son of God. And John would call them a wicked generation and a brood of vipers. Remember that? because they would not receive the witness of God from him about Christ who is God in flesh who can forgive their sins and save their souls. What does verse 34 say? But the testimony which I receive is not from man. It's of a heavenly origin. But I say these things so that you might what? be saved what humility is demonstrated here by God the son if it was just me speaking the message would be quite useless the message I'm speaking to you comes from my father it's eternal authority and while it was meant to compassionately save it was stirring a fire that could not be put out in the hearts of those who refuse to bow their knee to Jesus as Lord. You often hear it said that Jesus is to be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, right? So Jesus is asking for them by the authority from heaven to give their hearts to him fully and to believe in him as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. The divine reality that many came to Christ and salvation from John the Baptist's preaching was proof also that God was using him as his witness. Only God can change the way someone thinks and lives when they place their trust in Jesus Christ alone. And again, we'll study the testimony of the Father, testimony number two next week, and we'll study the testimony of the Scriptures, the third witness verifying the person and nature and work of Christ. But for today, as we head to our baptisms, have you received Jesus who is the divine testimony of God? Have you been saved by him? Is your heart at rest? Is it at peace? Have you ever considered Christ as God or have you only considered him as Jesus the man? You see, folks, our unbelief should never be to a lack of evidence. There's plenty of evidence. Look around you this morning. There's several hundred evidences 
in the changed lives of people that once thought of Jesus as a good human that then bowed their knee to him as good God. Right? And they realized the peace and the overwhelming love that only he can bring to a soul through forgiveness. So our unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It's never due to a lack of testimony. It's never due to a lack of sufficient sacrifice for our sins. I mean, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was for the sins of the whole world, John 3 tells us. 1 John 2, verses 1 through 3 tells us, among many, many other Bible passages. And our unbelief is never due to a lack of simplicity of understanding who Jesus is. So please believe Jesus Christ came speaking these words and doing these miracles and signs so that you would believe in him. You're about to hear from four ladies who bowed their knee to Jesus Christ, the son of God. They had heard enough testimony of Jesus. They had heard enough evidence verifying his personhood and his divinity. They certainly trusted in the sufficiency of his sacrifice for their sin on the cross, and it was simple enough for them to comprehend. Because that's how kind God is. They're all young women, and in an information age like no other, they allowed the Spirit of God to distract their attention away from the influences and noises of our world unto Jesus, and they believed. And they were saved, forgiven, overwhelmed with the compassion and love of Christ and his ability to forgive and restore their relationship with their Father, their Creator in heaven. So my friends... As you listen to these testimonies, please don't take a posture of indifference with Jesus. You must see him for who he is and decide by his grace to bow your knee to him and his lordship and be saved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for the simplicity of the understanding of this first witness from heaven as to who Jesus is. And I pray through the testimonies and the preaching this morning, the Spirit of God would arrest the attention of those who need Christ here and draw their eyes heavenward to be saved. In Christ's name, amen.